This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed News Magazine. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the Barry Teen Helping Ukrainian Refugees, Student Summer Jobs, The Spring Real Estate Story, but we begin with Home Economics. The headline of an Angus Reid survey released just this past Monday read, Bank account blues, half of Canadians say they are worse off now than a year ago. Far fewer expect improvement. What? Here to help us sift through the rather pessimistic findings is John Rowe, research associate with Angus Reid. John, welcome to the feed. So great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Anne. Let's start with the timing of this particular survey. It was released eight days ahead of the federal budget. Why? Well, we wanted to kind of look at Canadians' finances heading into kind of budget season. Obviously, there's still uh, a lot kind of left up in the air as far as what the federal government is going to be doing with their budget. Um, But we always kind of like to take the temperature of Canadians' finances about once every quarter or so. So we typically ask a couple questions uh, looking at how they find it felt, how they feel that the last year went um, as far as their finances, whether they're better off or worse off, and how they feel that the year ahead is going to go and whether they feel they're going to be worse in 12 months or better in 12 months. And 47% of those surveyed stated that they are worse off financially now than they were a year ago. And, and one would think that a year ago, when we were still dealing with the pandemic full-blown, that, that w- those were tough times. So this is not really good news, is it? Uh, we've done this question uh, since dating back to 2010. Last quarter, 49% said that they were worse off than a year ago, and then this quarter is 47. So those two numbers are at the highest we've seen kind of in our tracking since 2010. Uh, typically, there's more Canadians that say they're doing about the same as a year ago, uh, and now it's more more Canadians are saying they're worse now than saying they're the same, uh, and only 15% of Canadians say they're better off than a year ago. So can you explain exactly what Canadians are saying when they say that they're worse off financially now than a year ago? What are they talking about specifically? Because this question is so general, people kind of take this and they can answer in in different ways that are kind of personal to them. But I think a lot of what plays into this uh, is looking at things like your household budget. Like, how do you feel? How far do you feel your money is going? uh, Whether or not you feel like you're kind of getting ahead or falling behind. And I think over the last year, you look at things like uh, inflation and the cost of groceries. Uh, you're, if you have a house, your mortgage is going up because of uh, the interest rate increases from the Bank of Canada and then renters as well. A lot of renters across the country, especially in places like Toronto and Ontario, they're, they're seeing higher rents over the last year. Uh, so I think all those kind of factors play into people's kind of financial assessments. Uh, and especially if you looked at the last year, as you kind of see that so many Canadians are saying that they're doing worse off and you kind of look at those financial factors and how those have increased and gotten more expensive, things like groceries, et cetera, uh, over the last year. I think that's what kind of plays into it. And do you think that the threat of a recession, and we've been threatened by this for quite a while, but it's still looming, does that have a bearing on how people feel psychologically about their finances? I, I think it must. And it's it's hard to know, I guess, how much Canadians look uh, at like the financial news, whether they're, they're paying attention to these kind of recession forecasts, but... I think that's kind of been in the conscious of people for a long time. As you said, that people have been kind of forecasting recession, recession is coming in 2023, uh, kind of looking at the usual fallout from these kind of interest rate hike cycles. There have been a lot of headlines and a lot of economists of late predicting that there should be some sort of recession in 2023, but uh, it hasn't come yet. 
But yeah, that must play psychologically into into the minds of teens as well. So John, almost three quarters of those you asked who said their finances had deteriorated in the past year also said that they expect them to worsen. That's terrible. We kind of look at both that, the backwards looking and the forwards looking. Yeah, I think people that have seen kind of their grocery bills increase, those kind of expenses keep growing uh, and kind of feel like maybe there isn't uh, a reprieve in sight for those kind of rising expenses. Uh, they're going to look at the next 12 months and they're going to be like, yeah, like I don't see anything that's coming up that's going to improve things. Uh, overall, it's 31% of Canadians that say that they feel like they're going to be worse off now than they were a year ago. But uh, there is a lot of overlap between the people that believe they were uh, worse off over the last 12 months that also believe that they're going to be worse off in the next 12. You talked about Canadians' top concerns when it comes to everything financial, cost of living and inflation, health care, the environment. Do these concerns mirror the government, the federal government's top concerns, do you think? Well, it's if you look at what kind of uh, Christian Freeland has said, uh, heading into the budget and what they're looking to focus on, uh, some of the big new expenses are going to be related to health care. So that's from the health care, the federal government, provincial uh, accord that came about over the negotiations over the last couple months. So the federal government is going to have to step up and put the money that they said they would to the provinces. So that's 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 up there. Uh, and as well, Christopher Freeland is talking about uh, clean tech and kind of green energy and that kind of thing. So investing more in that area. So uh, cost of living is number one at 59%. Healthcare is number two at 48%, and then housing affordability, 27%, and environment and climate change is 23%. In some ways, I think the federal government is kind of aware of what Canadians kind of prioritize. And when it comes to like those top three issues, cost of living, health care, uh, and environment, housing affordability has kind of creeped up in the recent months. But usually those three uh, are kind of in the top three, and they kind of vary, and especially over the last year or so, we've seen that. Earlier this week, according to numbers just released, the Bank of Canada may stay on the sidelines again for the next rate decision. But the rising cost of food and shelter still continue to be big problems for Canadians. We kind of sliced the data uh, as far as top issues. Uh, We looked at Canadians who believe they were worse off uh, now than 12 months ago and believe that they're worse going into the future. Uh, and they're looking specifically kind of more at cost of living above any other issues. So 69% believe cost of living and inflation is the top issue among that among that group. Uh, so, yeah, I think, like, even though inflation is slowing uh, by the Statistics Canada most recent measure, uh, there are still concerns because food prices are growing faster than the rate of inflation for everything else and shelter prices, too. And I think one of the biggest aspects of that still rising inflation was mortgage payments because of the interest rates, like mortgage interest as part of that kind of bucket of goods they look at has increased significantly as well. So, yeah, there's still concerns, even though inflation is heading, I guess, in a positive direction for in the Bank of Canada's mind. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about Tuesday's budget and your survey. What do the findings tell you about what Canadians want from their government? Well, I think... Canadians, because cost of living has become uh, basically the top issue as as we've measured it over the last three or four quarters or so, I I think any sort of affordability uh, help would probably be well accepted and and appreciated by Canadians at this time. Uh, But I mean, obviously, that like there's still the federal government kind of has to walk a fine line. Uh, because a lot of economists are worried that any excess federal government spending could undo some of the work Bank of Canada does to to fight inflation. So I think 
some Canadians are looking for cost of living help, kind of affordability help, but others may be a little bit more worried about, okay, well, if the federal government spends too much, are we going to go back into a period of rapidly rising inflation? John, can we wrap things up with a slightly optimistic note or on an optimistic note, one of your findings, only one in five expects a reversal of their personal finances in the next 12 months. So that's good news. The, the maybe not so good news is that only one in five is expecting this. It's important to look kind of at the long trend with this is that typically when people look at the next 12 months of finances, as we found uh, in our data kind of asking this question dating back to 2010, uh, most Canadians are more likely to be pessimistic than optimistic over time. That, that seems to be the case where more Canadians say, yeah, I'm going to be worse off next year uh, than better off next year. But most of the time people say, I, I think I'm going to be the same. So it, it is kind of typical, I think, for Canadians to be a little bit financially pessimistic more than optimistic. So even though only one in five Canadians say they feel like they're going to be better off, that, that is kind of normal, I feel like, because it, it, it does seem to be the Canadians typically over time are not that financially optimistic. And as you look at past reports and look to the future, are you concerned about the state of finances when it comes to Canadians from coast to coast to coast? Well, I think this is a particularly economically challenging time for Canadians. I, I, I think especially when you look at factors like inflation. Inflation is not as far as last year. We hadn't seen those kind of numbers uh, since the 1980s. Canadians are coming out of a period where interest rates are really low, so the cost of borrowing money and things like your line of credit, your mortgages, all those things were a lot cheaper to get uh, in recent years than they have been now. Uh, so I think, yeah, it is a particularly challenging time for Canadians and financially-wise, and there is a lot of uncertainty in whether or not we head into a recession uh, or whatever happens over the next 12 months, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty. So it, I think it is a very difficult financial time right now for Canadians. John Rowe, Research Associate, Angus Reed. thank you for your input. Thank you for uh, your analysis and really appreciate your time on the feed. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Anne. Two pretty positive events made headlines this week. Spring arrived. And inflation cooled. So what do these seemingly unrelated happenings mean for Ontario's real estate market? Here with the answer and what may be coming to a housing market near you is Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Welcome to the show, Tim. Always a pleasure having you with us. Oh, my pleasure, and Thanks for having me back. A couple of conflicting reports out recently. Uh, an RBC report stating that Canada's housing market won't return to normal levels until 2024. And then another media outlet had a headline, a spring renewal for Canada's housing market. What are you predicting? What are you suggesting? First, Anne, thanks again for your interest. I really appreciate uh, how, how you get to your listeners, the latest news on, on the housing market and how we can make more people uh, find a great place to call home uh, in our country because that's been slipping away. So, number one, thank you for being a champion of home ownership. So there's that old expression by Benjamin Disraeli, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> well, that kind of is real estate, too. There's lies, <laughs> damn lies, and real estate statistics. There's so much of real estate, Anne, that, that can be psychological, right? I mean, you're making the, the biggest purchase of your life. It's where you're going to raise your family. It's where you can be your most comfortable, the place of security, as we found out during, during COVID in a big way. So people are really motivated not only by basic economics, but by the feeling as well. And that's why my first answer to you here is 
always work very closely with your real estate professional. Somebody who's going to have your back, be well-informed, be your best advocate possible, and will know where the market uh, is going. Real estate can be so sensitive to the particular kind of home that you want to live in, the neighborhood where you want to move to, uh, that it makes a, a big difference between where things will actually lie in those two conflicting news reports for the average family. There you said it, news reports. So a lot of people rely on the media and they look at the headlines and the headlines have not been great lately. Prices have dropped. Inventory is just not there. Listings are down. But we did get some good news earlier this week. The inflation number for February cooled to 5.2%. So if we connect the dots, there's the possibility that the Bank of Canada may remain on the sidelines next month and not raise interest rates. How important is that to the mindset of the buyer and, and even the seller at this point? Yeah, great question, because it is about mindset. And so um, just by, by way of background, we did see a significant uh, cooling of the market since last February. That's February of 22. That was the peak. And that really was around the time that the interest rates started moving. You know, real estate transactions continue to take place when there are higher interest rates. The real enemy of real estate activity is changing real estate rates. That causes uh, instability, uncertainty, and a bit of a standoff where buyers say, okay, let's see where, where the rates are going, especially if you've got a variable rate, and home sellers saying, hmm, there are fewer buyers in the market. I might not get what the Joneses did next door. I'll hold off. So now that we're seeing some more stability in interest rates, now that inflation uh, is uh, getting better at control, uh, I suspect you'll see more people looking to get into the real estate market, both as buyers and sellers. In terms of your first question about those two stories, you know, I'm more on the optimistic side. I have the opportunity to talk to you know, many realtors on a regular basis from across the province. Typically, spring is a better season, but as we're hitting a, a, you know, more stability, uh, I think you'll see more of that underlying demand that's been on the sidelines come back into action. You know, we're hearing from realtors that their clients are calling them or texting or emailing them, whatever way they reach out to them, saying, I think I'd like to start looking again. Will that at least encourage more inventory, more people feeling comfortable about listings so that it's a more of an even market? That's exactly what, uh, what happens is when you start seeing more buyers uh, in the marketplace, and, you know, certainly there are a lot more multiple offers happening again for those homes that are on the market. But that just sends a signal to potential sellers that they'll probably find somebody who's willing to give them a good price for their home. So that means more inventory comes, uh, comes on board. You know, since um, uh, the last couple of months, we've seen some more positive signs in the market. As I mentioned, more multiple offers. That shows more uh, activity. Yep. Uh, the decline in uh, prices that we've seen since February has either... Uh, decelerated, or actually prices have gone back up in several areas. The main reason, and while I'm, I'm feeling optimistic about uh, the future in real estate, um, is that there's so much unsatisfied demand. You know, we've got that new generation of millennials who are having families, they're getting promoted, they want to get into the housing market. We've underbuilt housing now for over 20 years until the last two. We've not built enough homes to keep up with demand. And immigration has come roaring back in, into Canada in 2023. All of that uh, tells me that you'll see a lot of pent-up demand looking to get back into the market.
The Vancouver Sun, there was an opinion piece on March 19th, a man named Douglas Todd talking about the forces contorting Canadian home prices this spring, including mortgage rates, he called them distressing, house psychology, which is changing, and investors, large numbers of those who buy second, third, and fourth homes as investments, and many of them all cash. What are your thoughts on that? There's certainly a, a fair analysis of a lot of the, the dynamics that can, can drive the housing market. Uh, look, we, we all know that uh, a home is, is not only your most precious and, and valuable uh, asset, it's part of, of the Canadian culture. It's what has helped build our country and our strong and vibrant middle class. Like The, the great thing about Canada, uh, Anne, is whatever generation you were, you had a better shot at owning your home than your, than your parents, uh, your grandparents. I know when my grandparents came here from what was then Czechoslovakia, one of the first things they did was they invested in a home. They rented up the upstairs because they saw that as a solid investment that was going to pay off in the long run. There's just no fighting that. That, that is a good thing. That's a strength in our country. The biggest challenge for us right now is to make sure that governments don't take their foot off the pedal, that they focus on getting more homes built that average families can actually afford. We've seen some progress in that. My message to government decision makers, keep going. Just because prices have come down a little bit doesn't mean the, price, the affordability crisis has been solved. It's actually gotten worse because of the mortgage costs. So what's your best advice to, first of all, to the seller at this point? To work with that real estate um, professional, to have that, that key advisor, uh, advocate, researcher, champion uh, at your side. Look, you, you don't want to leave money on the table. Uh, you don't want to get too carried uh, away and, uh, and make a bad decision. You need them to keep you focused on what's going to be in your long-term interest in making that, uh, that purchase. Um, I would, my second advice uh, is, look, this is, this is a, a great investment. So if you are selling a home to prepare for retirement or because you're going to be moving up, right, that is a, a, a solid long-term investment. Just make sure the timing is right for you by talking to your real estate professional. And with that said, is it also good advice to not try and time the market? Uh, there's an expression I learned since <laughs> I left the world of politics and became CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association is that it's more often the market's going to time you <laughs> yeah. than you can time the market. <laughs> Be thoughtful, you know, uh, and, and, and get the best ad advice possible. You're making this decision for yourself, for your, for your loved ones, uh, and, and there is, as, as Judy Garland famously once said, there's no place like home. When it comes to that major investment, you, you don't fool around. And similar advice to the buyer at this point? Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think so. Um, look, I, whether they're first-time home buyers uh, or you're trying to get a home because the kids have come along and you want to uh, move up home, number one, uh, work with a real estate professional. Number two, you know, be patient. Uh, don't uh, don't get emotional. Make the right call for you and your family. The third part is to to be optimistic. Uh, I will give credit to the uh, the Ford government. They brought in four pieces of of legislation that are probably the most pro home ownership we've seen in a long time. I mentioned earlier and how we underbuilt when it comes to new housing for over two decades. The good news is because of this new legislation to speed up approvals, hold costs down, we've had the two best years for new housing builds in 21 and 22 than we did since the 1980s. So we're on the right track. Um, and I just would say uh, that the ideas that we brought forward on behalf of Ontario Realtors to get more homes built in cities and small towns, mid-side cities, they're good ideas. So the government should keep going. 
and make sure that more people can get the keys to a great place to call home. There's been a lot of sweat, blood, sweat, and tears when it comes to people who have big mortgages, particularly this past year, and also those who feel that their equity has dropped because prices have dropped. The value of, of, of their home has, has dropped in the past year. So how do you change that feeling about what they've done? They're already in the market. You know, they may want to move up. They may want to downsize, but they're, they're worried about their investment. Yeah, so maybe I'll talk about inflation as a, as a follow-up, and I'll address um, the main issue there, Anne, which was the, the value of the home. You know, that certainly is true if people bought at the, the peak of the market, uh, and now, you know, we're down uh, one year later. But for those that bought two years ago or three years ago, real estate values uh, are still up. Secondly, this is a proven long-term investment. So unless you're flipping homes and, you know, moving every year or two, um, to be patient because it has been demonstrated that it's among the best investments that anybody can make uh, because it goes up over time. It is the largest source of, of savings for our vast middle class towards retirement. And I'll tell you this too, you can invest in a stock and a bond, but you can't live in it. You can't raise your family there. So over time, I, I can't tell you, you know, Anne, what's going to happen in two months or three months, but I can generally tell you that in two years or three years, real estate values tend to be up. Let's talk about York Region. What is the real estate landscape looking like right now? Well, it's a, it's a great area to live, right? So I think there's a lot of pent-up demand in that area. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on one particular uh, community or not. You should always have somebody who has local expertise to help you decide what's best in the neighborhood that you want to, uh, to live in. But, you know, I, what, one thing that makes me very proud as an Ontarian is we've seen you know, our province do very well. And the greater uh, Toronto area has been a, a beacon for new investment. Our job creation, despite some uncertainty in the, in the economy, has actually been, been quite strong. We continue to attract people from around the world and around Canada to raise their families or start a business here. Like that all is very, very positive for where we're going to see housing prices go in the medium uh, and the long term. If you're trying to get in the market, you know, then make sure you work with that, that realtor because uh, I, I do think there's going to be more opportunities as we head into what's traditionally a stronger spring season. There's usually an, more homes in the market in the spring than there was in the winter before. You know what my favorite four-letter word is, by the way, Tim? It's sold. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. You bet, and, and always a pleasure. And, and if folks want more information on some of the things I talked about or our own research, they can see it all at orea.com. That's O-R-E-A, orea.com. Thanks, Ann. Thanks, Tim. And for all the latest news on everything real estate, tune in to On the Market with Asif Khan and Tina Cortez, Saturdays at 11 a.m. only on 105.9 The Region. Next, the renovations at the legislature. Kevin Frankish now with the Renault plans. The legislature building at Queen's Park is getting its first renovation in more than a century. And a local MPP is part of the team guiding that effort. Newmarket Aurora MPP Don Gallagher-Murphy is on the committee helping to rebuild or to renovate our legislature building. Joins me right now. Hi, Don. Kevin, how are you? I am doing well. So we are seeing this is the first major renovation for our legislature building since it opened. 
That is correct. And uh, right now, there is definitely a clear and demonstrated need for a comprehensive restoration of the Ontario Legislative Building at Queen's Park. Like most all other 19th century legislatures in other jurisdictions. Now, this is a tough thing to begin with because anytime people hear about the the government spending money, um, we don't like it. And Mm -hmm. then we hear, oh, they want to renovate their offices. And we don't like that. But we have to remember, and this is so important to remember, this legislature building doesn't belong to you and the MPPs at, at, at Queen's Park. It belongs to all the people of Ontario, and it's in our best interest to keep this thing up. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, Kevin, piecemeal repairs are no longer viable. That uh, honestly, a full restoration of the legislative building and a relocation of operations is definitely needed. We need to bring it up to a modern safety and operational standard that meets the needs of parliamentarians and serve the people of Ontario for years to come. It served the people of Ontario for 130 years. We want to ensure it's going to serve Ontarians for another century. How much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take? Well, very good question. Uh, We do believe that costs may be significant. However, the state of the building systems basically leave us no alternative. So this is why we put forward this piece of legislation. Uh, Once this legislation is passed, then at that point, all of the detailed uh, costs, the project scope, costs, timing, uh, to do determined precise restoration work will be at that time given more of a unique circumstance of the Ontario Legislative Building. So what I'd have to tell you is that will all come once this uh, act passes. Okay, you got to ballpark this for me. How much are we talking? Just, just, I'm not going to hold you right down to the penny, but how much? I wouldn't even gander a cost. What I would tell you is that our standing committee on procedure and house affairs went to Ottawa to take a look at uh, the buildings in Ottawa. And we are not of the same magnitude. But I'll tell you, they have spent hundreds of million. And by the time center block is finished, uh, they're estimating four point five to $5 billion. Again, we are nowhere near uh, the amount of work that needs to be happening uh, as in Ottawa because that's several buildings and the center block I think is probably double the size of Queen's Park. Uh, But we are talking about a significant investment. And you know what? The expense is worth it because the people of Ontario and our democracy is worth it. Okay, so you've got to move everybody out of there. Now, it's one thing to move all the offices uh, out of there and find other places for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's another thing to move the the government out of there. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about the house. Yeah. What, how is that going to be taken? So uh, it's a good question because this is something uh, we made a decision on through our committee by doing the entire Queen's Park. A full restoration would mean that we all have to move out. And that means every artwork, every 
artifact, every piece of marble, etc., has to be moved out. Never mind all the people, which is approximately, what, 500 people. So it will, uh, this part of this act, once again, it will allow this new secretariat body to look for a location where we could continue doing our democratic work for the people of Ontario. Obviously, there's going to be storage of materials uh, that's going to be required. So it is a significant uh, process that we are undertaking here. Give me, give me some big examples of of things that need to be changed and, and how deteriorated they become. Uh, good point. Uh, right now, if we look at some of the things I've been actually, I've heard from the very top, the attic, right down to the very bottom, east and west, all over that building. I haven't been between the walls, but let's just say there right now, if we don't get moving on this project, there could be further delay risk to critical uh, failure of fundamental building systems. That would include HVAC, electrical, plumbing, IT services, or the physical security itself. And this would prevent the continuous operation of Parliament. This is why we need to get moving on it sooner rather than later. And of course, we're, we're living in a different world right now. How uh, will security factor into this? Because obviously, this is all going to be kept in mind because, you know, like I say, different world than it was in 1893. Absolutely. And you raise a very good point, Kevin, because it's security for the parliamentarians. That is going to be uh, one driving factor, but it's also about the sustainability of the infrastructure. There are new ways to go about the building so that it is sustainable and we're looking at other jurisdictions and what they've done best and taking lessons learned so that we can ensure we implement all the best security, all the best sustainable infrastructure into this new building that will hold us for years and years to come. Okay, in contrast, how do we keep this building as open as possible with the renovations? So uh, when you say open, if it's open to the public, to the public. Uh, open to the public, definitely we want to ensure that Ontarians can come to Queen's Park like they do today. 250,000 people come and visit Queen's Park every year. So we want to ensure that that is maintained and that they are able to uh, come and see us when we're having our debates at Queen's Park uh, during the question period. We want all of that, but we want to ensure that the building is very secure and obviously sustainable. So uh, once the, when do you anticipate, first of all, the legislation uh, being passed and then past that, how long after that will the renovations begin and how long do you anticipate it's going to take? So, good question, and as I noted, uh, Kevin, with this act will then come the Secretariat, who will then be responsible, and that's their sole purpose, is their responsibility, because we're talking multi-year project here, and it's a very complex project. So, they will be the ones with uh, a really tight oversight, and uh, myself sitting on the Standing Committee on Procedure 
Secretary House Affairs. We will be working in collaboration with the Office of the Assembly and the Board of Internal Economy, uh, again, along with other oversight of an all-party committee of parliamentarians to oversee this process. So how quickly will it all happen? Uh, I say it's going to take some time for all of the planning, but starting up this secretariat will definitely get the process moving quite quickly. It's ironic. We've just seen a huge renovation over at the Mowat Block. Uh, Sir Oliver Mowat was our premier when the legislature buildings were first opened at Queen's Park. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I would say that, again, what we are hoping to do is learn lessons, and that's why we've been visiting other jurisdictions, mm-hmm. namely in Ottawa, because we're really looking to projects of this magnitude, what are the best lessons learned uh, that we can take and apply to Queen's Park. Well, the first day, too, the, the legislature building opened to the public in 1893. Uh, people rode the, 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 the new fangled electric elevators all day until uh, one of them got stuck. And they, got, mm-hmm. they shut them down <laughs> for the entire day after that. Uh, you know what? I have to tell you, I've been stuck in there twice. <laughs> and I've only been a newly elected MPP since June, and I've been stuck in there twice. <laughs> so but let's just say it's not a fun process. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen again after the renovations. Exactly. All right, Don Gallagher-Murphy, thank you so much for this. Wonderful. Thank you, Kevin. And by all means, would love to speak with you again in the future as the project rolls out. Oh, for sure. And and I encourage everyone to get down to Queen's Park. There's a beautiful park, and that's what the Queen's Park in its entirety is called. It's Queen's Park. There's beautiful yeah. grounds to walk around. But yeah. just walk around that building and look at the stone. Look mm-hmm. at this structure and realize that it is tradition and is a, a sense of permanence that we have had in this province and have been lucky to have in this province since 1893. Every day I'm in awe that I have the good fortune to be representing my constituents of Newmarket Aurora in that building and uh, be their voice at Queen's Park. So thank you very much, Kevin. Newmarket Aurora MPP Don Gallagher-Murphy on the committee guiding the process to restore Queen's Park. Thank you. Coming up next, the student summer job front. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. In the next couple of weeks, college and university students will be closing the books on another school year. Shaliza Backus with their options for summer employment. Time is flying by, and it's actually almost the end of the semester for post-secondary students, many of whom will be searching for summer employment. Finding a summer job has become even more difficult over the last three years due to the pandemic and a lot of businesses are struggling, but the Canada Summer Jobs Program has been designed to help. Joining me to discuss the program is MP for Vaughan Woodbridge, Francesco Sabara. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Thank you for, um, for inviting me. First of all, can you explain what the Canada Summer Jobs Program is designed to achieve? The Canada Summer Jobs Program is aimed at 
getting youth between the age of 18 to 35 employment and employment experience. It is a great program for employers, especially nonprofits, where the federal government pays 100 cents of the wages, or uh, up to, the, I believe, the minimum wage, 50% for for-profit uh, employers. For example, in, the, in my writing of Vaughan Woodbridge, yearly, nearly 400 youth gain employment for the Canada Summer Jobs Program. So they gain valuable experience that they can take, earn some money and get some employment experience. And I will say that we've been lucky enough to have a number of candidates through this program work for us here at the region. So that has been fabulous. And it really is opening a lot of doors for these younger people. It absolutely is. You know, the the diversity of the employers that apply every year to the Canada Summer Jobs Program, and now in the seventh year that that I've been able to be intimately involved in the program, it is great to see the diversity, uh, the experience of students that they're getting everything from, say, 105.9 in the region to the City of Vaughan, to the Toronto Region Conservation Authority, to Hospice Vaughan, just to a number of really great, great organizations and employers, both profit and nonprofit. I'm just really proud of the program, how efficiently it's run, and just the experience it's providing to youth. Yes, and MP Sobara, let's go off of that. Have there been uh, a long-term impacts on the Canadian economy and the job market through this program? It's such a valuable program in the sense that, you know, when you look at the overall job market, job market things in the labor market is very tight. There are a lot of unfilled jobs out there. I think in Ontario it's now 300,000. But at this time, this allows many, many uh, companies who, you know, are thinking about bringing uh, additional folks on during the summertime. And this covers, for some, like I said, all the costs of the the eight weeks that the the student would be there for. All right. And you mentioned this uh, a little bit before about your role in the process, but can you elaborate a little bit on that? And can you tell us how the program is funded and managed? Of course. The role of the Member of Parliament is to obviously promote the program. That's our primary role, to promote the program to as many employers as possible, both profit and non-for-profit. And then, you know, working with uh, the individuals that work at Service Canada, they go through a selection process of the applications that are submitted, and then we receive back the ones that have been approved from that, that process. And every year, it's just wonderful to see the number of applications that we receive from employers growing. That's, that's the great thing about the program so far, just the number of applications we receive has been growing, and the allotment's been growing, and it's just a wonderful program that provides a lot of great experiences for youth uh, here in Bonneville Bridge and, and across the country. And with that being said, how is this different from other government employment initiatives targeted towards youth? Well, this is a primary one that is, is, is targeted for youth. It's literally several hundred million dollars a year program. It's not per se, you know, going to be just about skilled trades or about one occupation. This is broad-based. Employers have to be a certain size, less than 50 employees. But employers can apply from diverse sectors of the economy and diverse sectors of the community. So it's really about getting youth experience during the summertime, you know, in between university, in between school. And it's, it's just such a positive program, providing positive experiences for youth in Canada and providing employers, you know, that assistance and bringing on some youth that, that they'll need in the, in the summertime or during that period of time for eight weeks and giving them that such valuable experience. And you know what? You kind of just answered my next question. I was going to ask what you think the most significant benefit of the program is, but you already said some. Are there some more benefits you feel? Well, I think the, the, the primary takeaway is, of course, giving youth that valuable experience, that for, you know, sometimes their first job, 
you know, giving university students some some experience in terms of what they're studying and get them a, a feel for uh, what they'll uh, be employed at and what they'll they'll be doing when they exit university. You know, allowing students to make some extra money during uh, the summertime that they'll use towards their education. And getting that that experience for for youth, and I still remember, you know, the first jobs I had when I was young, many years ago. Uh, getting that employer that, that that experience with the employer is just so important. Yes, it it really is. And this program, it seems to be growing, as you said, the number of applicants and number of businesses applying to be a part of it has grown exponentially. Are there any plans to expand or modify the program in the future? I can't speak to to what will happen to the program in the future, other than the fact that. I know my colleagues and I, we continue to advocate for increased funding to the Canada, for the Canada Summer Jobs. Uh, we know it's crucial for many, many employers, especially in the not-for-profit side in the summertime, taking care of, of you know, children with special uh, special abilities or adults with special abilities, getting their, you know, that first experience. So we know how valuable this this program is, both for employers and for, for, for youth getting that, that, that first work experience. Once again, MP for Vaughn Woodbridge, Francesco Sobara, if students and businesses both want to apply to be a part of this program, how can they do that? Well, the application period for this year is closed. We will actually be coming up soon enough with the employers that have been awarded their allotment or what they've asked for in terms of uh, Canada Summer Job Youth uh, and, and so forth. So we'll be the notification period for employers will take place shortly. But I encourage all employers to look again when the application window opens, and that usually opens at the beginning of December through about the middle of January uh, to the end of January where employers can apply. And for students who are planning to apply for next year, what do you think is essential for them to include in their application? Well, first off, go to the Canada.ca website, type in the Canada Jobs Bank, and get your profile loaded up there and start applying for the jobs because all the jobs that uh, the, the employers will receive notification for that they've been approved for, those jobs will go up on our jobsbank.ca website and they can start applying for those positions. All right. Fabulous. Once again, MP for Vaughn Woodbridge, Francesco Sabara, thank you so much for joining me. You are so welcome. Have a great afternoon. Over now to Glenn Perkins with support for youth to not only find jobs, but to build business as well. Youth Employment Services is close to having a 90% success rate in finding jobs, training and education for the workforce of tomorrow. Tim Lang is president and CEO. He joins us now. Tim, welcome to The Feed. Thanks for having me. What do you put that almost 90% success rate down to? Uh, a, a number of factors. Uh, first and foremost, we've got a great and passionate staff who believe in the mission of helping uh, young people, mostly whom are disadvantaged, um, and uh, training them not only with important employment skills, but also life skills that, you know, you know you're going to get knocked down, you've got to get back up, being resilient, and just keep on going forward. Let's get to the nuts and bolts. What are the key skills employers are looking for in students and recent grads seeking summer employment? It's a whole range. Um, I mean, there's always lots of employment opportunities and, you know, as they say, the future of work in the digital economy, but also in the trades. For the summer employment, that's obviously usually shorter term, so it's a lot of hospitality and, and retail, and there's been huge demand since the pandemic when initially those sectors were wiped out, and when they came back, a lot of young people in those sectors found other jobs, so now those sectors are uh, really looking for uh, help, uh, and the summertime is going to need it even more when tourism picks up. How can they optimize their resumes and cover letters to stand out in that summer job market? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. It's something that we work with our youth a lot on. It's about obviously putting your best foot forward. There's enough tools online and even on our website, yes, on how to present yourself best in a clean, clear template, but also leveraging and thinking about skills that you might have. That is something we don't always think about, isn't it? Our day-to-day activities, we could actually list some of them on a resume. Absolutely. Like There's so many things that people don't think about that we do, just as you say, in our day-to-day activities. So that's why sometimes, you know, certainly programs like ours, but sitting and reflecting and looking at other resumes will sometimes tip you off to think, oh, well, I've done that as well. And they've, you know, you see that they've managed to state it in a way that that, uh, sells them a, a little better. Tim Lang, President and CEO of Youth Employment Services, is with us. Tim, what networking strategies do you recommend for students and recent grads to connect with potential employers or learn about job opportunities? Well, first and foremost, we, we tell people that, you know, not get down. You've got to stay positive. It, it is a difficult market, especially come summertime, so you've got to be resilient. And it's, to some extent, a numbers game, so you've got to keep pounding the pavement. You're going to get a lot of no's, but don't get down because... Positivity is certainly something that all employers want. So even in the face of sometimes being rejected, you know, five times, still you've got to go in and be positive because uh, all people like that. But secondly, yeah, from a networking standpoint, because you never know when something will happen or when a word gets out that there's someone that's looking for an opportunity. And then lastly, I'd say try to differentiate yourself. Sometimes in this day and age, it's a lot of uh, electronic submission of uh, resumes and applications. Sometimes, if possible, try to take the extra step and go see them or try to call them. That might help differentiate yourself from just an electronic uh, submission. How much does attitude play in all of this? I'd say attitude does play you know, a good portion. I mean, obviously, we know that the economy can change, so sometimes there are more jobs, sometimes there are less jobs. Like right now, there's actually a good summer for jobs and opportunity. People like to be around people that look like they're energetic that are positive, obviously, you know, have good work ethic and know the job. So doing research beforehand for any interview is important. But that attitude is that can take you so, you know, so, so far, not only in job searching, but in life. Tim Lang, President and CEO of Youth Employment Services. Thank you for joining us on the feed today. Thank you. Our next story is about the value of volunteer work. Jim Lang with the amazing 13-year-old from Barrie who's helping Ukrainian refugees. Now, in my 10 years of 105.9 of the region, I've had the privilege and pleasure and honor to talk to some very interesting people, but maybe none other than Oscar Oliver, a 13-year-old from Barrie who's making a huge difference to help teenage and young youth and preteens and kids who are refugees from the war of Ukraine who are stuck in Poland with nothing to do, and he's doing something about it. He joins us today in the feed. Oscar, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. It's great. Thank you so much for joining us. First of all, let's talk about your campaign, Buy a Backpack campaign to help kids in Ukraine. How did you come up with this idea to get these backpacks filled with goods and stuff for kids in need in Poland? I came up with the idea by, so when the war started, I I came back to my parents and I, we talked about it and I wanted to help. When I was here, what's going on, I knew they had nothing. So I wanted to give them a backpack because it could hold everything inside that would be useful to them. The backpacks include clothes, educational items, personal hygiene, which is very important, and a toy. And for a lot of these kids, they were forced to leave their place in Ukraine and not 
take anything and go to Poland to refugee camp. So the inclusion of a toy, I think, is really important. Yeah, and a Lego as well. So you can go to oscaroliver.org. A $50 donation will buy one backpack. Now, I know you had goals about how many backpacks you wanted. Well, oh, we would like 3,000. Okay, that's good. So everyone listening... It's oscaroliver.org. Help Oscar get to that 3,000 mark. What's the response been like from your friends, your family, and your classmates in school? Everyone is very, really happy to see me doing all this. And they're sort of just blown away. We don't mention it a lot in my school, but every, every, everyone is so supportive of me and helps me out a lot. Have you heard any feedback from the kids, in, the Ukrainian kids that are stuck in Poland who've received the backpacks? Yes, I have. Um, one boy uh, sent a really nice email from their mom saying that he thanks it a lot and he was he's never been happier than to get something like this. Well, how does that make you feel to receive a note like that, Oscar? It makes me very emotional because you don't really get emails like that a lot of the time. And for when I gave it to them, it must have been so special to them that I made that I put a smile to their faces. Well, you're putting to a smile to a lot of faces of people here in York Region and on Ontario and Barrie for what you're doing. It's oscaroliver.org. $50 donation will fill a backpack full of clothes, educational items, personal hygiene, and a toy and Lego. So have the business community and the community in Barrie and around Ontario stepped up to help you fill these backpacks? Um, I go to Poland and everything is there and I fill it up in Poland. So I do it in a charity's basement which is my parents' charity's basement. And I pack it all there with all the stuff in there and I and I put all the backpacks together and we put them in trucks and they go. Do they take the equipment and supplies on a cargo plane and they fly it to Poland? Everything is bought and made in Poland. A $50 donation goes to my parents' fundraiser, Fantasia Dziecienza Fantasia, and it goes there and it buys all the supplies and then brings it to the basement where I pack. Oscar, um, we, now obviously you've been doing this for a while. Have you received feedback from other people in the community, maybe mayors, politicians and that, reaching out to you to let you know what they think of what you're doing? Yes. Um, John Brassard uh, came up to me and said that it was a very good thing you're doing. And it was really, it was really exciting moment. Yeah. Well, I would like to make a challenge to a lot of young people listening to this right now to, to help out Oscar, get the word out. Use your social media, your Snapchat, your TikTok, your Instagram. Uh, use it for good and get out there, oscaroliver.org. Get the $50 donation, get it to the website, and then he, they can get the stuff in Poland to fill those backpacks. The Buy Backpack campaign, please, everyone listening to Ann Romer in the feed, it's oscaroliver.org, $50 donation. We'll get all the supplies, clothes, educational items, personal hygiene, a toy and Lego, and then Oscar fills the backpacks in Poland and gets them to the kids in need in Ukraine. Oscar, thank you so much for what you're doing. I really appreciate you taking the time. And it's, I know a lot of people talk about, hey, I want to do something to help, but you stepped up, you did something, and you're re really inspiring to all of us. Yes, thank you so much. After the break, coping with liver disease. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. Next on the feed, the rise in liver disease and the lifestyle changes that could make a difference. Tina Cortez with that story. March is Liver Health Month, and Holly Nienkamp with the Canadian Liver Foundation, she joins us next with an update on the increase. Holly, for those who don't know or are listening right now, what does our liver do? Yeah, so that's a great question. The liver is one of the largest and most important organs in the human body. Uh, We like to call it a powerhouse organ. It works even when two-thirds of it is actually damaged. It performs over 500 functions that are vital to our life, like producing bile, cleansing our blood, regulating hormones, as well as producing and storing energy for the body. Now, you've suggested that one in four Canadians may be impacted by liver disease in Canada. That's up from one in 10 in 2013. Why the increase? Do we know? Yes, it's actually quite striking. Um, As you mentioned, about a decade ago, it was one in 10, and now we're seeing one in four. Uh, The reason for this is partially due to lifestyle choices that we do not always associate with causing us a tremendous amount of harm. Uh, So when we're talking about preventable liver diseases, like fatty liver disease, for instance, that can be things like our food portions, as well as a lack of physical activity in our day-to-day. We're also seeing things like childhood obesity rates soaring, which also increases um, an early onset of fatty liver disease in kids. Um, Pandemic drinking has also been a contributing factor uh, to more advanced stages of liver disease, especially in the last couple of years. And, you know, liver disease has long been tied to a stigma around alcohol and drug use. Mm-hmm. And yet, while we do know that, you know, it is a contributing factor to liver disease, it's actually just one in, t- one in 100 uh, different forms of liver disease. Before we talk about these signs and symptoms of liver disease, you mentioned fatty liver a few times. What is that? What are the signs? Yeah, so fatty liver is essentially when your liver has an excess amount of fat in it. And that can impact its function um, and can, you know, not make it perform its duties as well as they should. It's also preventable, which is why, you know, it's important that Canadians are aware of it. Um, About 25% of our Canadian adult population is actually living with a fatty liver disease, um, and they may not even know it. The tricky thing with liver disease overall, including fatty liver disease, is that it's not always obvious that you have it. Um, You often see symptoms when it's in a further stage of advancement, Um, and sometimes the symptoms are easily confused with other um, health issues. So we tell people to look out for jaundice, which is yelling up the eyes and skin, abdominal pain and swelling, swollen legs, um, as well as easy bruising and itchy skin. And those seem like very common symptoms, almost symptoms that could be symptomatic of something else. How do you know it's liver disease? Is it just, you know, head to your doctor and have it checked out and verified? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, You know, we're encouraging Canadians to be their own advocates, and that's really what Liver Health Month is all about, equipping them with the knowledge to reach out to their doctor when they think they might be at risk. Um, There is things like liver tests that your doctor can do where they use that test as well as your medical history to determine whether or not you have um, liver disease. Uh, these tests measure like functions of functioning of the liver um, and how well it's performing um, its duties. Are there ways to improve liver health? Yes, there are. Uh, so the great thing about uh, many and some forms of liver disease rather is that they are preventable. 
Um, so we say for li overall liver health, it's very similar to your uh, general health, what you do to have good health overall, um, with a few extra things. So, so that is eating well, including physical activity in your day-to-day, -day, getting vaccinated for hepatitis A and B, limiting alcohol and following the guidelines that are out there, as well as washing your hands and produce, um, and you know, asking for that help uh, from your doctor if you think you're at risk. So you can turn liver disease around in some cases? Yes, in some form. So fatty liver disease is um, one of those. Uh, the liver does regenerate. So it's, it's ideal that liver disease is caught early. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you mentioned that the liver regenerates. What are some other surprising facts that maybe Canadians don't know about the liver? Yeah, so just some of the fun facts, the liver is actually the size of a rugby ball. Um, it has the 500 functions. It's a really resilient organ. As I mentioned at the top, it, it works even when two-thirds of it isn't functioning. Um, so those are just some really great and fun facts about the liver. Now, March is Liver Health Month. What is the Canadian Liver Foundation encouraging Canadians to do this month? So for Liver Health Month, we're encouraging Canadians to tune into their liver health. It's a great month, a great opportunity to, you know, explore uh, the different forms of liver disease, learn about how you can prevent it and, you know, how you can determine if you might be at risk. So we're asking Canadians to either go to our website, which is liver.ca, or actually go to um, liver.ca slash just ask as we have a special campaign happening this month where we've rallied together a group of experts who are ready and waiting to answer any questions big or small about liver health. Um, so Canadians can submit their questions till the end of the month as well as reach out um, to us via liver.ca any time of the year. Holly, one more time for our listeners who want more information, where can they go? They can go to liver.ca. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.